I've never been accused of having a little mouth, so I hope you'll be able to hear me. Well, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, were any of you here when I was here last several years ago? Any of you? Yeah? Am I any taller? No. <laughs> well, it is a joy to be with you. Thank you very much, Pastor uh, Rod, for those very gracious words. I guess I should go home now after you said all those nice things so that I won't be here long enough to disprove them. My name is Avi Snyder. I'm with a ministry called Jews for Jesus. I'm curious, how many of you have already heard something about Jews for Jesus? Most of you. Well, then I'll go home. No, not yet. Um, later on, I'll give you something of an update about the mischief that we've been getting ourselves into. I like to consider us mischief makers for the Messiah. We have one overwhelming passion uh, to relentlessly pursue God's plans for the salvation of the Jewish people. We also like to bring the gospel to anybody else who will listen to us. You know, you don't have to be Jewish to love Jesus. Did you know that? Yeah. And you don't have to be Jewish to believe in Jesus. Did you know that? <laughs> so, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. Today, tonight begins a holiday called Hanukkah. The Festival of Lights. If you have Jewish friends or Jewish colleagues, co-workers, uh, you may have heard of, of Hanukkah. It always takes place this time of year in the, uh, the Hebrew month of uh, Kislev. Um, it's a curious um, holiday because you won't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. There's only one place in the entire Bible where Hanukkah is mentioned, and that's in the Gospel of John. <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 22, where the apostle wrote, it was Jerusalem, it was winter, Jesus was walking in the portico of Solomon. It was the feast of the dedication, Chag Hanukkah. It's a, a holiday uh, that commemorates events that took place um, after the close of the writing of the Old Testament. It took place in the intertestamental period when a band of um, fighters called the Maccabees rose up and overthrew the tyranny of uh, a Syrio-Greek tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. I won't go into the whole history. But uh, when they finally, when the Maccabees finally recaptured Jerusalem and cleansed the temple, they rededicated the temple, they reinstituted the uh, sacrifices unto the Lord. And so the theme is rededication or dedication, which is Hanukkah. Uh, it's very interesting because... Um, in the New Testament, when it is mentioned, it was the, uh, the holiday that Jesus chose to use, the occasion that, that Jesus chose to use to create uh, one of the most scandalous episodes in the entire New Testament. That was when he made it blatantly clear that he claimed to be God in the flesh. And to uh, make that claim at Hanukkah, in the temple was not a subtle thing to do. Anyway, I'm not going to talk to you about Hanukkah. I just thought I'd mention that. Um, if you have any Jewish friends, though, you might want to wish them a happy Hanukkah. It lasts for eight days. You might want to send them a Hanukkah greeting card. Um, I want to talk with you today, this morning, about um, how to love my Jewish people how to bless my Jewish, how to, 
how to pray uh, for my Jewish people. I'm really grateful to the Lord that there are so many Christians, especially in the UK, multitudes of Christians today who harbor a very, very deep, genuine love for my people. But this raises a problematic question. And the question is how to love us? How to, uh, to bless us, how to pray for us. That's what I'd like to talk to you about. Before we actually look at the scripture, I want to ask you to do something for me. Um, as you came in, I presume that you received a little bulletin, a church service, and inside you should have gotten one of these. Did everybody get one of these? I'd like to call your attention to it. You didn't get one. Slip up your hand, would you? I just happen to have some extras. Oh, there are a few people over there. Okay. Can we, uh, can we feel those back behind you? To the people behind? Um, I, want, I want to be able to stay in touch with you because I want you to pray for us. We cannot do what we do unless people like you are praying for us. That's the equation. That's how it works. Um, in order for you to pray effectively and intelligently for us, I want to make sure that you're getting our free monthly newsletter. Because of the new GDPR regulations, we cannot simply send it to you with you saying, yeah, sure, go ahead and send it. I have to have your legal permission on a signed document. So, even if you're already getting our newsletter, I want to ask you as a favor, um, I want you to take the time during the service today to um, fill out the response part of this. Give it to me at the end of the service or put it into the, uh, the offering when the offering is taken. Please let me uh, keep you informed so that you will know how to pray. Um, it's a very exciting time in our ministry. 200 of us uh, from our offices all over the world gathered in Jerusalem last May for a month-long uh, campaign in Jerusalem. We've been gearing up for this for 18 years. Over the, uh, the last 18 years, we had a series of 76 uh, high-profile evangelistic campaigns all over the world. Um, and we concluded with the 77th campaign in Jerusalem. It was wonderful, wonderful. We divided up into um, 10 different teams, um, focusing on uh, 10 different types of Jewish people in Jerusalem. I was embedded with the Russian-speaking team. I, I had the privilege of pioneering the, the work of Jews with Jesus in the Soviet Union. So the people on the Russian-speaking team were like my sons and daughters. You'll appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, we had a team reaching out to the university students. We had a team reaching out to the ultra-Orthodox uh, men, a team reaching out to the ultra-Orthodox women. We even had a sports team. I was not on that team. <laughs> <laughs> very, very exciting month-long campaign. At the end of the, uh, the month, 58 Jewish people had given their hearts to the Lord. Over 1,700 uh, men and women had given us their names and addresses so we could continue ministering to them. Um, we now have an established work in Jerusalem. Prior to that, we had an established work in Tel Aviv with 30 young, vibrant Jews for Jesus missionaries. So we need your prayers. We need your prayers for the work in Israel. We need your prayers for the work that's going on here in, um, in the UK. I'll be grateful for your prayers for the work throughout Europe, uh, in Hungary, Germany, the former Soviet Union. These are exciting times. Very exciting times. And I'm grateful to the Lord for all of the Christians like you who want to pray for us.
who want to bless us and who love us. So let me, uh, let me give you some input on how to love us, how to bless us, how to pray for us. Open up your scripture, would you, to, um, to Romans. Romans chapter 9, we'll begin in, in chapter 9. Follow along in, in your translation, if you would, as I read from mine. Romans chapter 9, Paul begins by saying, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I want to talk with you about how to love my Jewish people. Actually, I want to tell you a story first. 1995, I still lived in Moscow, but uh, I took my first trip to Germany because thousands of Jewish people were moving from the collapsed Soviet Union into Germany. So I took a trip there to explore the possibilities of, of opening up a work there and to see how Christian leaders might feel about it. And I remember one night I was speaking with um, um, a pastor. Uh, I'll call him Hartwood. That wasn't his real name. Hartwood and I instantaneously clicked. I'm sure you've, you've met people like that. You know, you have no history with them. Uh, we were miles apart in terms of culture. Uh, but even so, and language separated us, but even so, it was an instantaneous um, melding of our hearts. And we talked for hours into the night. And at one point he said to me, Avi, I know that God is bringing your people back to Germany as a special act of grace. But when it comes to the gospel, we cannot tell your people about Jesus. I said, why not? And I knew what he would answer, but I said, why not? He said, because of the Holocaust, we've, we've forfeited our right to talk to your people about Jesus. I said, well, you've not only, uh, you haven't forfeited the, the right, you, you, you have the responsibility. <laughs> he said, no, we, we just can't. I said, well, what do you advocate instead? He said, well, we should love your people. Uh, we should bless them. We should pray for them. We should help them wherever we can. But when it comes to the gospel, we should be silent. I said, silent? He said, yes. When it comes to the gospel, we need to be silent. So I changed the subject. We talked about other things. I, I told him about uh, some of the adventures that my wife Ruth and I had had when we moved to the Soviet Union as it was collapsing. He told me about uh, some of the adventures he'd had with previous churches. And then after a couple of minutes, I brought the subject back. I said, Hartmut, there were genuine believers in Germany during the war, right? And he said, yes, of course. And he told me about the believing church, which I already knew about. So I said, well, what would you say was the, uh, the mistake or, or, or the crime or even the sin of the believing church in Germany during the war? And without pausing to think, he said, we were silent. 
And then his face froze. It was as though the echo of his words had hit him over the head. (laughs) I said, yeah, you were silent and people died and went to hell. And now God's bringing all these Jewish people back to Germany. And what are you advocating? In the name of love, what are you advocating? Silence. I said to him, you know, Hartmut, to make the same mistake with the same group of people two times in less than a thousand years is a big mistake. How did Paul love my people? How did Paul love his people? This passage tells us he loved us with an anguished love. He says in Romans 9, the very beginning of the chapter, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He loved us with an anguished love. Why? Because he understood that we were separated from our Messiah and destined, therefore, to an eternity cut off from God. And this placed him in agony, in anguish. He loved us with an anguished love. Do you remember the scripture... In the Gospels, when Jesus fed the 5,000, do you remember the episode? Do you remember uh, how the text describes Jesus' feelings for the people? He got off of the boat, he sees the crowd, and it says he felt compassion for them. That's a very strong word. It doesn't just mean, oh, he felt bad for them or he felt sympathy. Um, It means he entered into their suffering. Co-passion. Why such a strong emotion? Scripture goes on to explain. It says, because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, I will confess to you, I don't know very much about sheep. Rod and I were talking about it a little bit last night. You know, the only sheep that I ever saw growing up in New York City were the sheep that we ate at dinner from time to time, (laughs) lamb chops, that was it. But I had a friend years later who did know about sheep, and he told me something very interesting. He told me, um, number one, the, the sheep are stupid. They're not intelligent animals. They are so stupid that um, they can't find their own food. They starve unless there's a shepherd to guide them to pasture. They're so stupid, he said, that if they are caught in inclement weather, like, like a, a sudden downpour of rain or, 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 or a blizzard, they are too stupid to find their way to shelter. They drown or they freeze. They have no defensive mechanism. They don't have teeth or claws to protect themselves. They can't run very fast. They're stupid and completely vulnerable. 
sheep without a shepherd are sheep that will soon be dead. What kind of people did Jesus see when he got off the boat? Were they smart people? Were they stupid people? Were they rich people? Were they poor people? Were they righteous people? Were they unrighteous people? They were one kind of people. You know what kind of people he saw? He saw dying people. That's what he saw. And his heart broke. His heart was filled with compassion. And so he spent the whole day teaching them. He taught them before he fed them. He always prioritized making sure the people got the message before anything else. Paul had that kind of a love for our people. An anguished love. He loved us with an anguished love. He loved us with a sacrificial love. He says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own. That's not a natural love. He's talking about people who who wanted to destroy him, who wanted to put him to death wherever he went. I only know of uh, two other people identified in Scripture who loved us with that kind of a sacrificial, unnatural love. One was Moses in Exodus chapter 32, after we had transgressed by worshiping a golden calf. Moses goes up to the mountain once again, and he pleads with God. He pleads with God on our behalf. He says, God, forgive these people, or if not, then blot me out of your book of life. He had an unnatural, sacrificial love for our people. Paul had an unnatural, God-given, sacrificial love for our people. The only other person I know of in Scripture who's identified, although there might be others, I just haven't noticed them, but the most obvious one, of course, is Jesus, who did endure eternal separation from the Father for the sake of his people, for the sake of all people. Paul loved us with an anguished love. He loved us with a sacrificial love. And he loved us, here comes the disturbing part, <laughs> he loved us with a verbal, vocal love. His love was never, never silent. Because he loved us, he told us what, he, what we needed to hear, whether we wanted to hear it or not. Because he loved us with a godly love, he was not silent. Now, isn't it sufficient enough just to love a person with a, with a silent love? Isn't it enough to... Um, to live out the gospel? No. Here's where I'm going to offend some of you, but then I get to leave, so I don't have to worry about it. You know, it's popular today for people to say, we don't have to explain the gospel. We just have to live the gospel. That is a lie. That is at best 
Biblical ignorance. You can't live the gospel. The gospel is not a lifestyle. The gospel is a message. There are Buddhists and atheists who will live a much godlier, kind-hearted life than all of us. You can't live the gospel. There's only one person in history who ever lived the gospel, and that's Jesus. He's the only one who lived out the message. He died as the payment for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the message. That's the message that has to be declared, understood, and acted upon in faith in order for a person to be forgiven of his or her sins and reconciled to the Father. And that cannot be communicated with silence. It has to be explained. Paul explained, told, proclaimed, stated the gospel wherever he went. His love was never silent. Sorry for screaming at you. No, I'm not sorry I screamed at you. I always scream. <laughs> Let me give you an illustration that will maybe help you understand it a little bit better. Maybe it will help you understand how, how unworthy of the notion of biblical love it is for us to say that uh, we can love people with a silent love. My wife and I have uh, four children, three of them natural, one adopted. They're all grown now. We love our children very much. Suppose my children were dying of a disease. Suppose there was a cure for the disease. If they take the cure, they're cured. If they don't take the cure, they will die. And suppose that one of the effects of this disease is that they have no comprehension of the fact that they're sick and dying. They feel great. They have no understanding of the fact that they're living a way that's killing them. And let's say, for argument's sake, that if I tell them that they are not well and that everything about their lives is destroying them and they have to turn away from that and take a cure, Let's say, for argument's sake, that to hear that news from me, there's an 85 to 95% chance that when they first hear it from me, they will revile me for giving them that bad news. If I love my children, what do I do? If I love my children, what do I do? 
Do I do everything possible to try to find a way to communicate what they need to hear in a way that at least they can understand, even if they don't at first receive it? Do I look for a way, do I take any step, even a small incremental step, so that they can hear what they need to hear, or do I fear their rejection and their displeasure so much that I decide to be silent and let them die and say that I did it because I love them? If I love my children, what do I do? It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. I thank God that Jesus never loved us with a silent love. Yes, he fed our hungry with the loaves and the fish. Yes, he healed our lame, our sick, our blind. Yes, he even raised some of our sons and daughters from the dead. And he told us what we needed to hear even though he knew how so many of us would at first respond. He had to tell us the truth because he loved us with a biblical love, with a love from the Father. Biblical love compelled him to speak. Biblical love could not allow him to be silent. The prophet Isaiah said, for Zion's sake, I will not be silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not Paul loved us with an anguished love. He loved us with a sacrificial love. He loved us with a vocal love. That's a love from the Father. That's how Christians need to love my people. How should Christians bless my people? Well, how did Paul bless us? Take a look at uh, Romans chapter 11. You still with me? <laughs> Romans chapter 11. Verses 13 and 14. Paul, writing to you, he says, verse 13, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of us, save some of them. How did Paul bless us? He blessed us with the gospel. He blessed us by giving you Gentiles the gospel in order to provoke us to jealousy. He said, I magnify my ministries that I might move my fellow countrymen to jealousy and save some of them. And he exhorted you to provoke us to jealousy as well. But you have to consider, what makes us jealous? What might make us Jewish people jealous of you? Your lifestyle? No, we have our own lifestyle. Your culture? No, we have our own culture. Your conduct? We have our own conduct. What will make us jealous? What makes us jealous is who you claim to have and what you claim to possess. 
the certainty of the forgiveness of your sins, the comfort of God's presence now and forever, the confidence of knowing His plan and purpose for your lives, the reality of a vibrant, living relationship with our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the security of knowing that nothing can separate you from his love, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers. That sense of security, that will make us jealous. And that's what we need to know about. You see, because we can't be jealous if we don't know about it. If we haven't been told. I beg you. Bless us by provoking us to jealousy. But tell us so that we can be jealous. How did Paul pray for us? Well... Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they will be saved. Okay, let's, let's take a quick poll. How many of you think that... Uh, the words that Paul wrote were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Anybody think that? Okay. Well then, <laughs> if that's the case, then when Paul wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they will be saved, he wasn't really just expressing his own sentiments, right? He was expressing the, the sentiments of God the Holy Spirit, right? It is the Holy Spirit's desire that my Jewish people be saved. Well, what do you think? Um, when we want to know how to pray, is it good to take our cues from the Holy Spirit or not? Does that sound like a good workshop for how to pray? <laughs> But what about, um, what about in the book of Psalms when it says pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Shouldn't we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Absolutely. But, but if you think that that commandment, that exhortation to pray for peace is, is an exhortation and a commandment simply to pray for the cessation of hostilities, then you don't understand what the, what the biblical concept of peace is. You have a very shallow, we have a very shallow understanding if we think that shalom, that peace in the Bible is simply the desire for the end of hostility. You know, you could get rid of all the weapons of war, you could have all kinds of treaties, nobody would be killing anybody, and there would still be no peace. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about peace. Jesus said... I don't give you a peace that the world gives. I give you my peace. Biblical peace embedded in this word shalom 
is the notion of a restoration of a right relationship. A loving relationship. And Paul talks about the fact in Ephesians, writing to Gentile Christians, talks about the fact that because of what Jesus did, we Jews and you non-Jews are reconciled to each other because we have been reconciled to the Father. That's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. There is no peace without the Prince of Peace. Why? Because he is our peace, Paul says. He makes us one. He <laughs> breaks down the wall that separates us. I suspect that many of you here do pray for the Jewish people, and I thank God for you. But if you're not praying for our salvation, then your prayers are good, but your prayers aren't good enough. Pray for the salvation of my Jewish people. Pray for those of us who bring the message of peace to my people. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. I want to just uh, wrap this up by sharing a few more thoughts with you about about biblical love, because it's really so crucial. Um, you know, it's, it's especially important now for genuine Christians um, to love my people, to let my people know that they are loved, to let them know why you love them. It's especially important now. Um, you wouldn't know this, but um, we Jews know this. Um, there are all kinds of surveys coming out now that are startling everybody. It doesn't startle us. Um, but the surveys show uh, that um, anti-Semitism is, is, is extremely virulent throughout the world, especially in Europe now. Um, One-third, <laughs> to show you how severe it is, one-third of Germans have never heard of the Holocaust. No, one-third of Europeans have never heard of the Holocaust or have heard uh, really nothing about it. Now, I'm not here to go into a whole long story about that. What I'm saying is that there's a detachment from history which, is, which allows for a rise of hostility toward us. For those of you who already love my people, it's going to get harder for you to love my people because you're going to want to, to show your affection and allegiance to the Jewish people, and you'll be tempted, therefore, to disavow Anything that my people disavow. You understand that? Well, Jesus, for most of us, is in the disavowal category. Right? You're not going to win any kudos from most of my people by letting them know that you want them to hear about Jesus and to believe in him. They're going to consider that not an act of love, even though it is an act of love. And so you're going to be tempted to disavow the cause of Jewish evangelism as a way of showing your allegiance and your affection for us. 
How's that for a subtle spiritual attack? It's going to, be, it's going to become harder for you to love my people with a biblical love. So let me help you understand your choices for how to love us. You can love us with an idolatrous love. You know what that is? That's a love that puts us on an idol. It puts us on a pedestal. That's a love that says, whatever you Jewish people like, we like it. Whatever you Jewish people do, we do it. Whatever you Jewish think, we'll think. And if you want to think that you don't have to believe in Jesus, we're with you 100%. That's an idolatrous love. That's a love that worships an idea of us Jews, but it doesn't really love us. You can love us with a frightened, insecure love. That's a love that is terrified of losing our affection or friendship with you. That's a love that will always sacrifice truth for the sake of being loved back. Okay? That is not love. That's fear. <laughs> That's terror. That's insecurity. That is not love. Or you can love us with a biblical love. I love the places spiritual, the, the spiritual well-being of the beloved above every other consideration. A love that wants what's best and right in God's sight for the beloved. A love that does what's right and speaks the truth in love, regardless of the consequences that you will face for, for speaking the truth in love. This is how the prophets loved us. This is how the apostles loved us. This is how Jesus loved us then and still loves us today. This is how he loves every one of us. This is how we must love each other and this is how you as believers in Jesus need to love my people. So, do you love my people? Do you want to bless us? Do you want to pray biblically for us and love us the way Paul loved us? Love us with an anguished, sacrificial, vocal love. Any love that falls short of, of sharing the good news with anyone is not a biblical love. Bless us the way Paul blessed us. He blessed us with the gospel message. He blessed us by provoking us to want what you possess. And pray for us the way Paul prayed for us. He prayed for our salvation. And he exhorted believers to pray for him so that he would have the boldness to do what he was called to do. Many people don't realize that Paul struggled with fear. It's stated at least twice in Scripture that he had um, an ongoing problem with fear and pride. <laughs> and he asked people to pray for him, he says, so that I will proclaim the gospel boldly as I should. That's a good way to pray for us Jews for Jesus. Pray that we'll always preach the gospel. Pray that we'll preach it boldly with a biblical love. 
pray that we'll never be ashamed of the gospel. Pray for the work in Jerusalem. Pray for the work here in the UK and London. Pray for the work throughout Europe, Hungary, Germany, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. Please remember to fill out that, that coupon. Give it to me at the end of the, uh, of the service or put it into the uh, offering so that I can stay in touch with you so that you'll know how to pray for us. I'm looking forward to being with you uh, this afternoon to talk with you um, a little bit more. I want to talk with you about the irrevocable call of the Jewish people. Um, not so that you'll think better of us or anything else, but so that you'll understand that one of the best ways to interfere with the cause of world evangelization is by keeping the gospel away from us. So if that intrigues you, if you want to know how that plays out, you'll just have to come back after lunch. And as you bless us, um, may God bless you. Uh, take a look at the literature that I brought with me. One book in particular I would highly like to recommend, although I'm embarrassed to recommend it. I I'm embarrassed because I wrote it. <laughs> Jews don't need Jesus and other misconceptions. See if there's something on the table that um, may encourage and bless you and strengthen you in your own faith. And as you love us, as you bless us, as you pray for us, then... May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, the Messiah Jesus. Let's pray. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, we thank you so much for the gospel, we thank you for loving us enough to send the Messiah, your son, to die as the payment for our sins, to rise from the dead. Would you keep your eyes closed just for a moment? Um, thanks for letting me scream at you today. Listen to me for just a moment longer. I'm presuming that most of you here, maybe all of you here are already genuine believers in Jesus, but maybe there's someone here who's a visitor, maybe there's someone here who's never really repented of your sins and given your, your heart to the Lord. That's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to, you need to forsake your sins, ask his forgiveness, and seriously commit yourself to following him. If you've never taken that step of faith, I urge you to do it today. I'm going to say a very, very simple prayer with my lips. And if you know in your heart that you have never before repented of your sins, then I invite you to echo this prayer silently in your heart. Jesus, I know that my life does not please you. I know that I am living in rebellion against you. I know that I deserve your judgment. 
but you died as the payment for my sins and you rose from the dead. Please forgive me. From now on, I will follow you. And keep your eyes closed just one more moment, all right? If you said that prayer silently in your heart, while everybody else's eyes are closed except for mine and except for Pastor Rod's, I want you to just slip up your hand so that one of us can talk with you afterwards. Don't be ashamed, don't be afraid, but if you said that prayer silently in your heart, just slip up your hand. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy, for your grace, for your love. Thank you that you're coming again. Lord, may it be soon and in an acceptable time. In Jesus' name, amen.